Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Our interview today is with Dave Ulrich. Dave has been called the father of human resources and his writing, speaking, and consulting puts him toward the top of the list of people influencing the way we work. Dave and I discuss what makes a great leader with a focus on leading through disruption and crisis. 12 Geniuses is brought to you in part by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. That's the star with two R's, conspiracy.com. Dave, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Don, what a thrill to be with you. I uh, look forward to our conversation very much. Let's start out with a very simple question. What does good leadership look like? And I'm talking about the top quartile of all leaders, all individual leaders. Well, you started with a simple question. Good leadership is somebody who makes others better. Leaders use their power to empower others, their strength to strengthen others. We can get now into the filter, if that's a pyramid, into all the competencies and stuff. But at a very simple level, leaders use their power to empower others, their strength to strengthen others. And they help others become better because of what they know and do. And how about the top 10% of all leaders? We would call those great leaders. You know, it's interesting that people look at that. Jim Collins looked at that level five leadership. We've identified five competencies as we've looked at, we've called it the leadership code. We looked across hundreds of books and studies. There's five things that leaders seem to know and do, principles that get applied in a lot of different ways that make them the best of the best. They set a strategy. They know where they're going. Number one, a leader, where are we headed? What's the future? Where are we trying to do? Number two, they get things done they deliver, they execute. Number three, they take care of their people today. They inspire, they motivate, they engage. Their people are, are a part of it. Number four, they build their people tomorrow. That's creating a human capability or a culture. And number five, they take care of themselves. They have personal proficiency. So strategy, where am I going? The top leaders know they have a purpose, direction, vision, mission, whatever you want to call it. Execution, they get stuff done. They hold people accountable. They deliver. They execute, they build, they build systems and patterns. Three, they manage their talent today. How do I take care of my people? Communicate, engage, help them. Four, they build their people for the future. That's empower them, uh, make the next generation stronger. And in the middle of that, north, south, east, and west, they really have a set of personal traits that help them take care of themselves so that they can care for others. Where, where do leaders typically have shortcomings on, on these five different areas? You know, we all have predispositions. Many of us have done Myers-Briggs. I love to I love to be in a room, 40 or 50 people, and say, okay, we've all done Myers-Briggs. How many tend to be an introvert? And it takes about a half a second or a second or two, and then two or three people raise their hands halfway. How many tend to be an extrovert? And immediately people throw their hands up to the top of the ceiling. And I say, you know, we all have a predisposition, introvert, extrovert. So what I love to do, and I'll answer that in a different way, I love to say to people, before I talk about leadership, what makes a great leader? And I just listed some of our research and people write stuff down. A great leader has a vision. They have a strategy. They know where they're going. They lay out the future. They anticipate the customers. They, they feel a sense of future. Good. You listed five things. All five were in the North Star box, the strategy <laughs> box. You have a predisposition. Another leader may say, wow. 
great leaders in my experience, they get things done. They deliver. They hold people accountable. They make things happen. I trust them because they do what they say. Whoa, you're in the South Park execution. And what I have found is most of us have a predisposition. Oh, the one I love. What, and this is getting a lot of attention today. What makes a great leader? They're authentic. They have integrity. They have trust. They have self-esteem. They respect each other. They love. They care. They have grace. Whoa, you got the personal proficiency. You got the heart. You don't know where you're going. You don't get anything done. You don't care for your people, but you got a heart of gold. And so what I find is it's not a, an answer, but I think all of us have a predisposition. And, and then when you know, like introvert, extrovert, I don't know what you are, Don. I don't know. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand. I, what are you? Are you more introverted or extroverted? I would say I straddle, straddle the line. I would say when I was younger, I was more extroverted and I really prefer to be by myself now. <laughs> by the way, when I was younger, I was introverted. I am more so now. <laughs> but but <laughs> by the way, once I know that, that my predisposition is to be an introverted. I mean, somebody has said a face for radio and a style for internet. You know, stay away from people. I, uh, I can then force, not force myself, I can teach myself the extroverted trick. And I know you can too. You're gifted at that. The same is true in leadership. If I know I'm predisposed to strategy, vision, direction, success, goals, objectives, I can say, you know, let's take care of our people. Let's build a culture for the future. Let's Let's make sure we deliver. And, and no matter what the predisposition is, we can help leaders learn where they need to go. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good point you're bringing up here is, it, and it requires that self-awareness, right? I, I'm predisposed in these two areas. I have shortcomings over here. Now let's kind of fill in the gaps. How do we fill in the gaps? What are the most effective ways of filling in those gaps? Well, there's, it's interesting. The research by thoughtful people at Center for Creative Leadership is 50 or 70, 20, 10. 70% experience, 20% coaching, 10%. I have a different formula. By the way, I went to Morgan McCall and Bye Bye who are geniuses in this field. They really are part of your 12 genius cadre. And I said, Morgan, where did you come up with this 70, 20, 10? And he said, I made it up. <laughs> and I thought, that's so cool. I mean, that's so cool. Now, he didn't make it up out of thin air. This guy is so smart. And Bob Eichinger and Mike Lombardo. I go 50, 30, 20. I think we can get better 50% through experience. So I say to a leader who's predisposed to be an introvert, you know, let's get you doing some public affairs. Let's get you giving talks. Let's get you and let's coach you. Let's experience 30% coaching and training. There is a value of training. There is a value of coaching. And 20% for me is life experience. Join the Rotary Club. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to, uh, the Rotary Club people will probably love me and others will hate me because I didn't talk about the other clubs. But, but find a life experience where you have to ex develop and expose yourself to that skill. I think when we 50% job experience, job rotation, job assignment, the development assignments that Lominger talks about so well, 30% training that's a guest experience, not just a, not just a tourist activity. And then 20% life experience. By, for example, one of the great life experiences, and I'm not sure if you've had this yet, Don, is raising teenagers. I hear people talk, well, I know a lot about performance appraisal. And then in, in 10 years, when they come back and they're six-year-old or 16, I don't know much about giving feedback yet because, uh, but, but I, I mean, that's a life experience and, and that's personal, but it can be formal as well. A lot of companies do philanthropy. 
so get our get our employees doing philanthropy. Get them out there managing the philanthropy. I was on the I had the privilege of being on the board at Herman Miller, where in our charter we gave a percent of our annual profits to a Jubilee fund, a philanthropy fund. For the first few years on the board, everybody is proud. We're giving money away. And then it hit us. Let's get a group of employees, high potential employees. Let them go give this away from the assembly line, from the marketing department, from a supply chain, from a technology. They became a team. They set a strategy. They gave out the money. And boy, did they learn from that life experience outside of the formal work setting. I'm curious, in this 50-30-20 model that you talked about, where does mentorship fit in? Because that has been probably the most important part of my personal development. You know, I think it fits in in all of those in some ways. But I think it fits in at work. One of the things we found in mentoring the 50% on the job is in the previous work, they'd say, have a mentor. What we're finding now in the work setting is have a network of mentors, plural, so that you don't just become dependent on one individual who might be in your function. Get a network of people who have different backgrounds. If I'm in finance, it could be somebody from finance or manufacturing or supply chain or marketing or HR. But that's at the job. I think there's also mentors outside of work. Let me ask you. Did you have a mentor who helped you with leadership when you were in HR, now that you're doing your, your business, that wasn't related to the company where you lived and worked? I did. I had some incredible mentors, not, not in the job. All of my mentors have been outside of, of my company. Yeah. And I think those mentors are incredible. It could be in a hobby group. It could be at a church. For me, it's through a church setting. Some incredible mentors. It could be through somebody I, I studied with at the, uh, decades ago at the university, he's still a mentor. So yeah, the, the, the headline is the mentors cut across the 50%. Training is harder to have mentors in the training. You get coaches during training programs, but also that 20%. And, uh, and then the other one is try to avoid a single mentor um, because the, the mix of mentors becomes very helpful. We talked about good and great leadership. What are some of the behaviors of real poor or bad leadership. Let me talk about the good and then you can see the opposite of the bad. And I'll do it with a story. I'm coaching a leader, incredibly good executive, senior in a large global company, big company. And I made a deal with him that he would talk to me as his coach before he did something precipitously. One of his employees made a huge mistake and it happened big mistake, going to cost a lot of money, major mistake, doesn't matter. We've all been there. We've all made them. And he had prepared an email because their company was global and doing email. And it said, you made a huge mistake that cost us millions of dollars. You must learn, you must fix this or you're in trouble. Okay. And I said to him, thank you for calling me before you had the dialogue. <laughs> Let me add three sentences. Sentence one, I care about you. Sentence two, you have great potential at this company. Then you made a big mistake. It cost us an enormous amount of money. Sentence three, let's learn from it so that you can keep your job. Now, the reason I'm sharing that is the goal for me of a leader, if I were to simplify it, is does an employee leave the interaction he or she has with the leader feeling better or worse about himself? By the way, in all the statistics I love, that's not a statistical question, but it's an intuitive one. Boy, I had an interaction with Don today. I already feel better about myself. You asked questions, you were curious, you got involved. 
that criterion, and I'll say criterion, becomes a real clarion signal that you're doing a good job. Now, look at this leader. I care about you. You have great potential. Then he didn't hide. You made a big mistake. It's going to cost us money. And then instead of punishing, he said, let's learn from it so that you keep your job. I think that's the issue of, of what leadership is. They leave the interaction feeling better about themselves or people leave the interaction with them feeling better. That's easy when you had success. Wow, Don, you're the most successful executive I've ever worked with. You're fun. You're great. You're going to be the That's not. By the way, that doesn't take a lot to lead. But can you give me comments that I need to improve, but I still can feel good about my relationship with you and myself? That's the test I, I've been using lately with leadership. We've been talking now for a while, and not once have you talked about technical competence. And I'm curious if that doesn't matter. And then I, I have a follow-up hiring question for you. You know, I, I think technology is an incredible enabler, and there's always an evolution of technology. And we're seeing a lot of that right now through the digital revolution. I uh, was on a call yesterday, or I was listening to a call with somebody from I don't think I'll name the firm. It's one of the, the top technology firms in the world and one of the, the technology geniuses. And the person was asked, what do you see next in building long-term leadership and organizational success? And the answer was interesting to me. The comment was, we need a digital fabric. So we need technology that connects us in a real way, which is a great metaphor. I love the idea of digital quilt, digital fabric. But then the next comment was, but behind the digital fabric is human connection. Because without human connection, technology is going to be vacuous. It's going to be a, a hollow success. So I believe in technology. I mean, technology lets us do things we couldn't have done. Your four seasons, summer in person, face to face. But you know what? We can manage this virtual call with you in Minneapolis, me in my home and and, and I think it allows us to connect. Now, you got to be careful to assume technology will replace some of that human connection. It doesn't. There still is a need for the face-to-face. -face. You know, historically, um, a lot of organizations hired their, their top individual contributor into a leadership position because they had technical competence. I can learn blockchain. I can learn AI. I can learn machine learning. I can learn metaverse. It's harder to learn cultural norms. And so I think when you promote or hire someone, it's the technical skills that you can train on, the cultural fit and the right cultural fit, I can go deeper on that, that you need to source and screen on. Are, are most organizations doing that in your experience? I think the better ones do. For example, in succession planning, the biggest mistake in succession planning is focusing on the person. You know, should we promote A, B, or C? No, you don't start with the person. You start with the requirements of the position. What does the position require? And it may be a better technology. It may be a global perspective. It may be innovation. But once you get the criteria of the position defined, then you can say person A, B, C, where do they, where do they match against the criteria? Succession, promotion is less about technology than it is the right skills. I'm going to do one other piece on that because I feel strongly about it and it's one we missed. There's a lot of talk about culture and values and, and, and what do we believe? What are our values? The most common metaphor for culture is the roots of the tree. It's the roots. It's, it's who we are. It's our identity. I believe that's a bad definition. I think the best definition of culture is the identity in the mind of our key customer. 
What do we want our customer to know us for? And by the way, that's changing. It's not roots, it's leaves. Because the customer is changing their expectation. K Kentucky Fried Chicken wants to be known more for healthy food, KFC. They're changing their identity. And you can pick dozens of companies from product to uh, subscription business. When we, bring, we begin to define culture, what I call outside in, what are we known for by our key customers? That external identity then shapes our internal leadership, culture practices. For example, almost every company we know, large companies have a competency model. Your leader should know and do ABC. I love to say, show me your advertising. Show me your promotion. What is it you're promising customers? Well, we're the most innovative in the world. Show me your confidence model. Is there an 80 to 90% overlap? Are we developing our leaders against the promises we make to our customers? That logic for me becomes so critical. And, and, and then we get the right values. It's not just the set of values. I'll give one example. A company had done a culture statement. And I said, you've got to take your values and culture statement to your best customers. And they said, okay. This is an extreme example, but it's pretty obvious. Their number one value was to be the most profitable firm in their industry. Take that to a customer. Mm. Hi, Don, you're our customer. Our goal is to be the most profitable firm in our industry. How do you feel about that? Uh, not, <laughs> you're not, overcharging me. You how are you overcharging me? <laughs> yeah, how much? Are you, yeah, I don't feel very good about that. That's a stupid value because that's, you know, it's innovation, it's creativity. And then go... And then say, well, we value innovation. Then go to your customer and say, Don, you're my customer. What would innovation look like to you? You define the behaviors, not us, because the value of innovation is not what we think, it's what you experience. And, and that for me is where ultimately the internal human capability practices are going to be sustained because they create value in the marketplace. One thing that I've observed is the importance the elevated importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sustainability. And I think these are, what you described is driving the, those elevated importances. The job of a leader is to use his or her power to empower others. If you don't believe that your job as a leader is to make others better, DEI won't happen because you take authority. I, one of the most dangerous leaders I coached once surrounded himself with people who weren't as good as him. And in the short term, he looked great. No, your job is to surround yourself with people better than you. Use your power to empower others. Number two, everyone has something to offer. That's race, it's gender, it's ethnicity, it's sexual orientation, it's geographic dispersion. My job as a leader is to find what everyone can offer to help us succeed in our marketplace. With those assumptions, we track numbers, we do programs, we do strategic interventions. But those assumptions, use your power to empower others, and everyone has something to offer that will help customers have a better experience. Then I think DEI begins to be more sustainable. I want to turn our attention because we're going to focus the, the second half of this interview on crisis leadership. What have you learned about leading through a crisis over the last couple of years? Could you talk about leading and navigating through crisis? I'm going to go to the, uh, the humanitarian crisis in the Ukraine. Um, I don't know. It's been five weeks now, I think. Not very long. That's not very long. I don't know how you reacted when you woke up that Thursday morning five weeks ago and turned the TV on and the Russian invasion had started. And 
I was emotionally paralyzed. I'm not watching a lot of TV because I think the global television is difficult. It just struck me. And it just, the pain, the, the angst of the, the brutality of this. And I thought, what can we do? What can we do? And so I started to think about all the crises we run into, social injustice, the pandemic. And, 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 and it hit me, are there some principles in navigating in a crisis we can manage? I, I'm going to jump ahead and I'm going to come back to those principles. So I decided that you know, everybody wants to do something. Let's go to the front line in Poland and Romania with, at the point, 2 million refugees. Now there's 4 million. Let's go give out food. Let's go cook food. Let's go. Let's. And then it hit me. That's not going to help very much. Uh, you don't need me to do that. I mean, you know, I get tempted, Don, as do you and most humans. Yeah, you know, let's go. I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give people food. I'll send. I'll send toys. It hit me. That's not what you need to do. So we sat back and said, what are principles of a crisis? Let me give you four. Number one, work within the ecosystem. Work within the ecosystem. Um, there are humanitarian aid agencies in this in this Ukrainian crisis. You, we found 30 of them, uh, religious organizations, United Nations, government agencies. Don't recreate what they do. Be a part of that ecosystem. Come together. Uh, and I think there are times to come together. I, I think it's just amazing. Number two, so build, be part of an ecosystem. Lift where you stand. Do what you can do. There's a story told by a religious leader, a group of people were trying to move a piano, grand piano. They couldn't move it. Finally, somebody said, everybody go stand around the piano. Six or seven men in this case, equidistant. Everybody just stand there. Now lift. Lift where you stand. Do what you can do. I can't go serve food. I can't go build a homeless shelter. I can't. I know HR. So three weeks ago, my wife and I said, let's do a webinar on HR. What can HR people do in this crisis to help those refugees? Lift where you stand. Number three, make sure the value is in the person affected interest. Let me say that again. Value is defined by the receiver. Quick illustration. I saw as I was studying this, a young girl came across the Ukrainian border and it's cold. And the humanitarian aid worker with all good intent said, here's a beautiful down jacket to keep you warm. Or here's a pink frilly sweater. She reached for the sweater. You know, don't take away. I, I, I think we have to give people agency and dignity of choice. Now, by the way, they gave her the sweater probably with clothing underneath it. So she didn't get cold. And so. Ecosystem, work with others, lift where you stand, do your unique contribution. Number four, recognize somebody else's agency. And number five, build what I call human capability. Three things, take care of the people one by one. HR, be a caregiver to your employees, be a caregiver to those you're trying to serve. Build the right organizational policies. We identified 45 things HR can do to help those refugees. I'll just one quick example. Many of those refugees, and 4 million, probably 500,000 women, they need jobs. They need jobs. HR, you know how to help people get jobs. You have a training center. At night, from 6 to 10, open your training center 
ask people to train in language and skills and jobs. You also often have companies right now in Eastern Europe or Europe that are empty because people are working at home. If somebody came across the border that was running a business in the Ukraine, she left it all behind. Give her space. Become an, an incubator for innovation. By the way, we had 45 of those that people are doing. Cool stuff. Take care of the people. Build organizational innovation. And then finally, help your leaders model the right success. Leaders are so critical. They demonstrate empathy and emotion and care. And HR people need to help leaders do that. And the final caveat we had, in a, so I have four things in a crisis, and I'll do my final caveat. Work it within an ecosystem. Don't try to recreate the wheel. Two, lift where you stand. Three, give people agency and choice. Make it their choice, not yours. And four, build human capability. And under human capability, the thing we found the most, take care of yourself. If I'm coaching a leader in a crisis, I say to that leader, are you taking care of yourself? Don, are you taking care of yourself, your emotional energy, your empathy? I don't know what that means for you. It could be diet, nutrition, exercise, sleep. By the way, and it's probably not drugs and alcohol and, and, and addictions. But unless you take care of yourself and your style is going to be different. We talked about that, the predisposition. You may be an introvert. You may be an extrovert. Take care of yourself so that you can then care for others. Boy, those are my four principles. And, and, and I want to dive into mental health for a moment, if, if you don't mind, because I think it's so important. And that's what you're talking about here is, is where does mental health management fit into the leader's role? And you have this incredible model um, that, that you kind of outlined here. But I think for a lot of us who are in leadership positions, this is uncomfortable territory. Oh, I mean, we didn't, we didn't go into leadership to manage mental health. But what we're finding is that mental health, the way people care for their emotional well-being, especially coming out of the, the, the COVID crisis. I mean, the COVID pandemic affected 8 billion people. With vaccines and masks and good social behaviors, it's coming, becoming an endemic. It's a disease that will last but not be crippling. Mental health is growing. We see all the symptoms, depression, anxiety, stress, over, overwhelmed. Those are going up. The leader's job is to pay attention to that because the mental health affects the employee experience. The employee experience affects our business results. It's hard to deliver strategy when employees are not having a great experience. It's hard to deliver customer results without it. So we said, how do you build mental health? How do you help the employee experience be better? Some of that is leadership. We talked about the four E's of leadership, empathy, emotion, experience, energy. Are you as a leader being empathetic with your employees? Are you, are you showing empathy? Are you showing uh, emotion? Are you sharing your vulnerability? HR practices that build employee experience, giving people flexibility, control. A culture that gives you an employee experience, that builds a culture and an identity that we take care of our people. We have found that that mental health agenda is just so critical because without that mental health, and the skills to drive mental health, we're going to have bad employee experience. And leaders, leaders can create some of that mental health. Um, I'll just go a step deeper. And I'm sorry, this is kind of dense and it's not <laughs> royal fun. But I talked about strategy. 
can you help your employees have confidence in the future by creating a compelling vision of your company? Execution. Can you create a positive and accountable work environment? Talent. Can you demonstrate those E's, empathy, emotion, energy, experience? Can you personalize the deal? Human capital developer. Can you build the next generation and make sure people feel good and personal proficiency? Can you express vulnerability and take care of yourself so that you then can take care of others? So the leader, I think, models his or her mental health and then drives the employee experience by so doing. And that then creates outcomes, customer, investor, community citizenship. And that spiral begins to be a positive agenda. That's where I hope we're going in, in the mental health crises of our day. By the way, I've got to ask you, Don, you've done six seasons, 90 webinars. Are there any themes you see coming up? Because I love to learn and you're in a perch to talk to so many thoughtful people that I don't have the luxury to talk to. What are the themes that you think are coming on the horizon? What do you see? The 2020s are going to be the most disruptive decade probably in human history. And we've seen the first quarter of that decade play out in that way. Incredible disruption, whether it comes in the, in the form of a war or a pandemic or technology advancement. And I also see that a lot of the systems that we have in place from a government perspective, from a governance perspective, the way that countries are working with one another are obsolete. The problems that we have are global problems, climate change, the incredible amount of data and the erosion of privacy. And these things cannot be fixed within our own borders. So you know, that, that's going to mean a very significant change going forward. And then the last thing is, I think we're in a, a position on the precipice of some sort of human evolution where we start to interface with our technology in a in a even more significant way. We saw it with the internet, we saw it with social media, we're going to see it soon with the metaverse, and then we're going to have human brain interfaces. And so what it means to be human is going to be different than it's been the last several thousand years or longer. So, you know, just just those minor things, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, climate change, human interface. You know, let me tell you something I've learned, in, and I love to keep learning. I've learned in the last six or seven weeks. I love the term disruption, uncertainty. We face more than we've ever seen. I mean, nobody six weeks ago could have predicted the invasion in the Ukraine. We couldn't have predicted two years ago the pandemic. I still remember when somebody said the NBA season was canceled. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the world is over. Um, I've written about how do you harness uncertainty? How do you manage and harness that? And I think that's wrong. In the last few weeks, what I've been thinking about is how do you find certainty and uncertainty? We can chase the uncertainty. I think it's better in some ways to take a step back and say, I'll, I'll use your, you have two children, three and six. You don't know what they're going to study. You don't know how technology will change their lives. You don't know who they're going to have relationships with. As they get older, you don't know where they're going to live. You don't know. There's so much you don't know. But there are a couple of things you do know. And I'm assuming as they get older, no matter even when they're teenagers, I've done this with my kids and I have older kids and grandkids, your kids age. You know what? I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. Nothing will change that. Nothing. Now, my kids have tested that. 
Uh, and I hope your kids don't. But yeah, I'm going to love you. I think sometimes in a world of uncertainty, we need to stop and say, so what am I personally certain about? In the last six weeks, I've been thinking about that. I can't control the Russian invasion. I, I No offense. I, I mean, my work is, is minuscule. But here's what I know. I am going to try to learn. I'm going to try to learn that human technology interface with metaverse. I may not be the first mover, but I am. I know in myself I'm going to learn. So as an individual, don't pick mine. Second, I am very committed that my learning will help someone else. If what I know doesn't help somebody else get better, then I'm learning the wrong stuff. I know that. I don't know exactly what I'm going to learn, but I'm going to learn and I'm going to try to create value. I encourage individuals to ask themselves, what do you know for certain? By the way, I also know about relationships, my family, my friends. I have, for me, a piece of my certainty is in my faith and nobody, I'm not trying to impose my faith, but people should be asking, what is it you know that gives you certainty in a world of uncertainty? I think organizations should do that. I don't know what's going to happen to my company. We may, we'll face a jolt, a technology jolt. Uh, we'll have a crisis. We'll have a, a, a food crisis if I'm a hotel. But I know how we respond to those crises. We'll, we'll respond with agility. We'll, we'll learn. We'll run into it. We won't hide from it. I think sometimes in the world of disruption, when the future is not predicted from the present, focus on what I know for sure. Now, that's not new news. Somebody has said, well, that's old news. That's true. But that's okay. I, I find, for me, that's very, I don't know if my kids are going to, grandkids, I don't know where they're going to be taught at school. Is it going to be at home? Is it going to be hybrid? Is it going to be technology? What I do know is that I will pay attention as a grandparent or our kids as parents to their kids' education. They will make that a priority. That's good to know. Okay, so that's, that's my latest thought around what you just said that I made notes on. It, in a world of unpredictable disruption, there are some things we know. And I think reminding ourselves of those and then acting on them becomes a very, very healthy place to be. Yeah. The, the other thing that I would say to that is that you know, we can look at, there's a personal bias that I have to see these disruptions and see the negative. Yeah. But as I sit oh, yeah. back, as I, as I contemplate them after a week or maybe a month, I think, oh my gosh, there's incredible opportunity here. And so the way that I talk about climate change, for example, is it's the greatest threat to humanity. Long term, within 30 years, 50 years, it's the greatest threat to humanity. Yep. That's yep. it. No, no question about it. And it is the biggest economic opportunity that the world has ever seen. It'll be bigger than the, the technology innovations that we've seen over the last 30 to 50 years. Great insight. Um, it, it, we're going to have thousands and thousands of innovations that will address climate change. And it's an incredible opportunity. And if you're agile, as we've talked about here, if you can think optimistically about how to solve some of these problems, if you surround yourself with great leadership, if you, solve, you, you create a great culture, you go, you'll take advantage of it. I like the second that you just said, the positive. How do I see opportunity even in I mean, right now, this humanitarian crisis in, in the Ukraine and Russia, and again, that dates our discussion, but it's, it's an example of many crises. This is not the only crisis. What an opportunity for people to come together to serve and to see the beauty of humanity. 
we see a leader in in the Ukraine. I mean, I'm, we're not here to get into politics, but this is a leader who stepped into that role. And and without getting into liberal, Democrat, conservative, that's kind of those labels are stupid. He stepped up to inspire others, and he's done. And not him, but also his wife. Let me just argue: this is not a, a single, but he gets his energy. He's inspiring. I don't know how that is going to end. None of us do. And and you may be watching this months from now, and the end has already occurred. But I think there's opportunities that we can learn from those incredibly difficult situations uh, to care for each other. Somebody showed me a, a tape, and it's on video, and you've probably seen it, of two Ukrainian children going into an Italian classroom. And you could look it up. It's really sweet. Did you see it? You may have seen it. So a Ukrainian mother walked into the classroom with her children, who are obviously scared. I mean, they've left everything behind. Uh, I'm going to get emotional and cry, and I'm glad you're not watching this. But all the kids are lined up at school, waving flags. And those two kids walk in, and they, they cheer. And two kids walk up and grab their hands and take them from their mother and walk into this crowd of children welcoming them. And I'm seeing that in the world that gives me an incredible sense of hope. You know, I personally feel like there's probably never been a better time to be a leader because I think that leaders have such a moral obligation not only to help prepare their people for the future, and when I talk about it, I talk about three years from now, not three months from now. You know, just think out three years from now, what do your people need? And, and then start to help build those human capabilities, as you've talked about, looking three years out. And then also leaders and the ability to navigate through these crises and through this unrest and this uncertainty. When you have leaders who can build confidence as you were talking about. Oh, what a great, what a great thing it is to your organization and to your society, to your country. It's, what it's, a, it's such a great time to be a leader. And I just wonder if you agree with that, if you have any comments on that. I, I would obviously agree with it. I mean, we're a little Pollyanna because we're sitting here. I'm not at the front line of that crisis, but I can feel it. I love it. It's not an op I don't think it's just an obligation. I think it's an opportunity. And the one place I would start, if somebody were to say to me, we've listed the 10 skills of future leadership, I think you have to start by taking care of yourself. Your physical, emotional, social, intellectual, personal, spiritual, whatever you call it. What is it you know? And are you caring for yourself so that you have the capacity to care for others? I love watching how leaders do that. And I think ultimately good leaders in this crisis create leadership. They build the next generation. They make the next, they use their power to empower others. They use, they know where people are coming and they help others get better. I mean, that little girl in this school that grabbed a, a, a Ukrainian girl's hand and walked into the school. What a sweet lesson. She just learned about leadership at age seven or six, about what it means to lead. And she's making this little Ukrainian girl probably language problems and everything else, but she's making her feel comfortable. I love that. And I hope I hope those listening to this kind of broadcast, whatever field, and, and you've done so many fields of, of expertise, climate, technology, science, reproduction, invention. I hope leaders in every one of those fields take care of themselves so that they can bring their gifts to the world and serve others. I mean, it's, I know that's Pollyanna, but that's okay. 
I'm willing to be a Pollyanna. I'm willing to be hopeful and to say, I want to be with that prophet who says, I see the future three, five, 10 years from today, and I'm going to create a pathway to get there. That's, that's where I hope we can go. Thank you, Dave, for your time. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. And thank you again to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this episode. In our next episode, former Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management President and CEO, Eva Marie Schoenborn joins the show. This was a special conversation for me because Eva Marie and I were college classmates. I watched her career develop over the years and it's no surprise that she has risen to such great heights. In our conversation, we talk about what it takes to be CEO, her role in creating a sense of belonging for all employees at work, and how her success has depended on the development and growth of others. That episode will be released May 17th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.